let me preamble what we're going to have a look at tonight. The New Testament is written against a backdrop that gives its language that it uses meaning. If you hear something without the context in which it's presented, it's very difficult to know exactly what is being conveyed to you. So in linguistics studies, there's some language that's used to help people to get their head around this concept that words have no meaning. And you'll understand what I, what I mean by that or what linguist, linguists mean by that. Words have no meaning until they're put with other words. Then they, they become what's called a term. So for example, if I said to you, that there are times, because you know, I'm into photography, I shoot in the raw. Excuse me, what is going on here? Well, if you're a photographer, if you're a photographer and you understand digital uh, single lens reflex cameras, the way they work, you'll know that you can actually shoot most of the time with what's called compressed photos. And that they come out as things like JPEGs, JPG or JPEG, but professional photographers don't shoot like that. What they do is they shoot in what's called a raw image. The raw image doesn't compress the photo. So you actually take a photo that might be about this big, but when you take it, take it raw, what you get is maybe a photo that big, but all of the information, all of the dots, whereas a JPEG will take out bits of information that you, your brain, your eye can't tell that they're missing. And so that terminology, I shoot in the raw, makes sense to perhaps a professional or a, or a, a photographer who's, who's taking photography quite seriously. If I said to you, knowing i just use that term, if I said to you, what does it mean if I said to you, bear? Well, you could tell me, what, what, what does bear mean? Put up with something. I can hardly bear listening to you. That kind of thing. No offence. Um, sorry? The bare minimum. So the, the minimum standard will take. What else? Bear means? A grizzly. Which reminds me, I was preparing. I've got three couples I'm preparing for their weddings coming up in the next few weeks. And the, the, the couple that I'm doing in January are going to have a, one of um, the young, uh, young boys involved in the network of the family is going to bring the ring down the aisle on a cushion. So he will be called the ring bearer. And you, you may, I, I may have told you this, but once there was a young boy who was asked, could you carry the ring down and be the ring bearer? And he was chuffed. And so come the wedding day, no one thought that there was any need to rehearse this. My experience of 35 years of doing weddings says you always do rehearsals. And when you think you're done, do it again, just so everyone's on the same page. And insist that the, that the bridal party are there too. So experience has sort of driven that home to me. And I'm not going to tell you how. Uh, so this young boy grabs, the, you know, come the wedding day, everyone's there, church is packed, and he's got the cushion with the, with the ring box on it, the rings, two ring boxes, and he's coming down, and he's going, grrr, 
Grr. Because <laughs> he thought he was to be the ring bear. <laughs> so, what else can bear mean, Judith? Laid bare. So strip back everything. It could also mean you, you, you run to the shower bare. It could also mean you open the cupboard and it's bare. Um, it could also mean, go, now you go down the road and you're bare left. So it could mean turn. So there's all these, so there's turn, there's empty, there's minimum standard, there's, you've, you've, I can, you know, you're up to my tolerance level, term that Tony uses a lot. And <laughs> so, but you can see, what I'm doing is illustrating, you can see how a word on its own doesn't actually mean anything. And you'll often see dictionaries will give you meaning number one. Meaning number two, meaning number three, four, and five, or so on. So words don't mean anything unless they're put in the context of other words. And the New Testament is like that. We've seen that there are parables that Jesus used. And the the danger is that we assume that the way he used a term in one parable is the way it's meant to be understood in other parables. And that's dangerous. For example, leaven. He used leaven. And the New Testament writers use the term leaven to often speak of corruption, moral corruption. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul says, so be careful of the company you keep. But Jesus described the kingdom that he's building as being like a little bit of leaven. Now there's no way Jesus meant that he was building a corrupt, morally questionable kingdom, is there? So it depends on the words around it that gives words their particular meaning so here's the word that I want to talk about tonight to you can anyone read that word all right well I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson the first two letters look like EU in fact it is epsilon upsilon EU whenever you see a Greek word with EU and EU is a vowel construction that makes the sound U. And it means, nearly always in Greek, good. Something good. Eucharist, which is what we're going to have a look in a moment, this word. Good grace. It could be eulogy. Logy, words, good words. Euphemism. So these are, you can hear, the, this is English, but you can hear how it's come from Greek. Euphemism, femo, is to take a word that means something, that actually means something, and claim that it means the opposite. A euphemism. So we live in a society now that is swimming in euphemisms. Um, the Greek word for death is thanos. So when we talk about euthanasia, we are talking about good death and so on. All right, this is, so that's, that's it. The next, the next part of this, charisteo. So whenever you see that on a Greek word, if you ever look at a Greek Bible, if you ever do, um, it means you stop right there and you put what's called, a, it's, a, it's a syllable marker. So eucharisteo. So that W is actually not a W, it's omega. It's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. 
really cool thing about the name Andrew is that it starts with Alpha and it ends with Omega. So, Eucharisteo. It, it, I'll tell you what it means as we go through this. Who thought they were coming to church tonight to learn a bit of Greek? But Greek is the language of the Bible, the New Testament in particular. In fact, it's also the language of the Old Testament in as much as in about 200 BC when the Jews had come back from Babylon they act, and most of them didn't actually come back. They came, so if I, sorry I should do this, Babylon over here, Israel over here. When they came back they actually went down to Egypt. Most of them went down to Egypt, Alexandria to be precise. And they spoke Greek, they wrote Greek, they didn't understand Hebrew or read Hebrew or the language as it became of the Jews, Aramaic, very similar to Hebrew. And this was a problem that the elders felt would lead young Jewish men and young Jewish women to abandon the God of the Bible. So legend has it that 70 of them got together and legend has it that in 70 days they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Anyone know what that translation's called? Alan? Starts with... Yep, that's it. Sept 70, the 70, Tuagent, the work of the 70. I'm not sure that they actually did it in 70 days. If they did it in 70 days, that would be remarkable. But the Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. It is the Old Testament that all, all of the New Testament writers quote. So Greek's a pretty important language. Greek has a vocabulary, a biblical vocabulary, of around about 200,000 words. So it has a lot of words to choose from. It can be very, very precise. One of the first things I learnt when I learnt Greek was that the definite article, which is the in English, we have one of them, the, and we have one indefinite article, an, or a, sorry, we have two, a or an, depending on the next word. But Greek has 24 forms of the definite article. It tells you how many, it tells you whether they're male or female, it tells you whether it's going or coming. It tells you all sorts of things. So, Eucharisteo. I'll give you a brief clue as to what it means. Biblical gratitude. It's used in, in English. It only occurs once as far as the word gratitude in the New Testament. But you may now be hearing... If you've ever been to, say, an Anglican church or some churches where they say, we are going to celebrate the Eucharist. The Eucharist. And that is the word that comes from this word. And it's that word because when Jesus took bread, the text in Greek says, he Eucharisteoed, he gave thanks. When he took the cup, he Eucharisteoed. Or as we might say in English, he Eucharisted. He Eucharisted. He gave thanks. I thought it would be a timely reminder for us because Christmas is supposed to be about gratitude, isn't it? It's supposed to be about us taking time out together to remind culture, I think, 
that it's time to give thanks. In Australia, we don't have thanksgiving like they do in America, which was the celebration of when the American pilgrims were able to celebrate a meal with the, the local Indian population, or Indian as they called them, population. We don't have that, which always confuses me then if we don't have it why do we have Black Friday because that makes no sense at all but what we do have is Christmas and it's a pretty big deal for us in Australia I've found that it seems like in America um, Thanksgiving is a probably a bigger deal than Christmas for many people but for us we take the opportunity to say thank you to the Lord on Christmas we actually have a Christmas Day service that might I hope that doesn't sound strange, but I'm discovering that more and more churches don't now. And I actually think that's sad. So we have all, we actually, in our family, actually follow that pretty closely. When our children were little, they could open uh, their stocking of presents, but when they, um, how old, when did we stop stockings for our kids? Grade six. Grade six. Stopped. So we are going to give thanks on Christmas morning, which will be a Saturday, um, which will be the 25th, by the way. And uh, that will be our opportunity to give thanks. And I think it's a, it's a, a remarkable thing to do in a community that has forgotten what Christmas is all about. Now, I grew up hearing uh, that the early Christians took the concept of Saturnalia, and baptised it with Christian meaning, which became the Christmas story. As I have thought through the years about some of the things I was taught when I was younger, I've thought, now where did they get that from? I've discovered things like this. There was no festival of Saturnalia, which is the idea of um, the winter solstice. The pagans never celebrate it. I mean, who would want to celebrate winter? And it's on the 21st, not the 25th. So there was no festival apart from the Christians who actually believed Jesus was born sometime around the 25th of December. Now where did they get that from? They got that from the concept that Mary conceived around the time of the Passover. And there's reasons for that. And if you think that Passover, Easter, is around about the third month of the year, Generally, it's the first Sabbath after the second moon, if you're counting. You add nine months to that, you end up pretty close to the 25th of December. So it's, it's quite remarkable. So to understand a lot of the concepts in the New Testament, we actually have to do a little bit of homework and look at what was going on in the backdrop of the Greco-Roman world. Now I say Greco-Roman world, why? Because... In the book of Daniel, you remember, if you've read through the book of Daniel, Daniel has shown a vision from uh, uh, Daniel chapter 8. In fact, it goes, it goes earlier. It goes Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar sees a great statue. Remember this? And it's got a head of gold. It's got a chest of uh, silver. Then it's got bronze. Then it's got iron. Then it's got iron and clay. And Daniel uh, shares, shares the vision with Nebuchadnezzar. That was a part of the challenge. And explains to him what it actually means. He's, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. 
After you will come another empire, and that will be the Persian Empire, they are the silver. After them will come another empire, they are the midriff of bronze, that's the Greek Empire. Then after them will come the iron, that is the Roman Empire. Then after them will come a blend of Rome and that which is of the earth. And for a Jew, that is the word um, G-E, it's, it's pronounced in Greek gay but it's where we get the word geology from of the soil and that speaks of the land Israel so it's a, it was to be a, a combination that didn't quite you can't meld iron and clay it was to be a union of Rome and Israel and it says they will step on the little stone but the little stone will break them and the little stone will grow into a great rock that will fill the whole earth. And that rock is Christ. So Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, this is what is coming, coming in the days to come. In Daniel chapter 10, we see that the, the, the vision is clarified yet again, where he's told that there would be a Greek empire that would come. It would be divided into four generals, which happened after Alexander. And then eventually two of those, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, would fight and then would um, come the Roman Empire. And that is exactly what happened. So the Greco-Roman world was the result of Greece and Rome conquering the world and succeeding each other. But in the Greco-Roman world, at the time in the New Testament, there was no government welfare. There's no social welfare. No assistance at all. If you were unemployed, tough luck. It wasn't like today, not at all. In the Greco-Roman world, there consisted these classes or categories of people, the wealthy and the poor and the slaves. But there were also these categories of people, and if you remember our series on the household of God, you, you will remember these terms. In the Greco-Roman world, there were people who were identified as patrons. They were wealthy people. They had households. A household consisted of family, extended family, servants, slaves. Then there were these other people called clients. They are people that for some reason a patron agreed to help and they became known as clients. Then there were these category of people who were patrons but they were, they were in a kind of a partnership or a, a mutual arrangement with other patrons and patrons would refer to those people as, and this is a class, friends. So that should change the way you understand something that Jesus said in the New Testament. We'll come to that in a moment. In the Greco-Roman world, honour was far more important than wealth. Far more important. Proverbs 22 verse 1 reflects this view in the ancient world. Proverbs, by the way, came out of the exile period. So between 400 BC to 200 BC or so. And a patron, I've said, person of wealth and but not all patrons were equal so for example we read um, in uh, Seneca and think and some of these 
uh, ancient historians who said that there were some, some Roman nobles who had up to 200 slaves as part of their household. That is wealthy. That is phenomenally wealthy. Now, not all patrons were equal in wealth and status. So two equal patrons referred to each other, as I mentioned before, as friends. So understanding that, just let me repeat what I've just said. If someone was known as a friend, a wealthy patron considered them to be an equal. A wealthy patron would only call another wealthy patron a friend. So when Jesus says this to his disciples in John 15, verse 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you, what's that word? Friends. Now they are going to hear that in the Greco-Roman world. We hear that as Facebook. For all that I, <laughs> you know, I met some of my Facebook friends the other week. In Hobart, they came to the upstream thing, and I'd never actually met them in real life. And I had to introduce myself to them. <laughs> oh, it was funny. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. So not, no holding back. So this, this puts that in a, in a different light. Jesus is saying, I treat you as equals. That should, if you're wearing socks, that should blow them off about this point, because that is phenomenal to think that's how Jesus treats his followers who surrender to him. So if a lesser patron sought the favour of a greater patron, he was referred to as a client. Now, how did this work? Well, I was flicking through my Bible just a moment ago and I read this story in Luke chapter 7. When Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, which was a town in uh, northern Galilee. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, why would a Roman centurion be able to send the elders of the synagogue to Jesus? Because he was calling in a favour. Because he had done something for them and they owed him. And they owed him gratitude. That's what they owed him. So I'll come to that in a moment. So here the text continues. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, listen to this, he is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. You see what he's done for them? He was a patron to these Jews in Capernaum. And, and Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, his equals, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes. And to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at, them, at him. 
and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So this, that little exchange there, we might miss what's going on, but it's quite profound. So why would a lesser, oh sorry, why would a wealthier patron even bother to help a lesser patron? Why would he do that? There's two reasons why. The first one is it would lead to honour. Did you hear how these elders of the synagogue honoured the Roman centurion? He loves our nation. He's a good man. He's worthy of it. And he built us a synagogue. That's called showing gratitude. So honour is important. To, to, to honour someone is to speak highly of them. But, but a patron, a wealthy patron, would also expect something else from his client. And this is where the word eucharisteo comes into it. It's the word gratitude. He would expect gratitude. But here's where the way we in our West think of gratitude is quite different to the Greco-Roman understanding of showing gratitude. So, for example, um, Stephen, could I use you as your crash test dummy, please? Thank you. If you could come out, please. If we're in a big crowd, I'd say give Stephen a round of applause, but we're not, so don't bother. <laughs> All right, so um, <coughs> Stephen's just done something really, really nice for me. He's just, I've just come to Stephen and said, oh, Stephen, I'm a bit low on parking money. Could you lend me $10 million? Sure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Now, have I just shown him gratitude? <laughs> I want to buy the building. <laughs> All right, so, so now, now, yeah, I know. I know, it's unreal. I parked there for 15 minutes the other day. It cost me $14. It was unbelievable. Oh, Hobart's terrible. It's, out, it's out, just ridiculous. Okay, so now that is the way we might do it. We might use the words thank you, and we think we've just shown gratitude. Here's how we would really do it. Eunice, can you come out, please? Can you, are you okay? Your leg's okay? You can come out, right? All right, so this is you. Eunice, did, have I ever told you what a great guy Stephen is? No, well, let me tell you now. You could, you could have said yeah all the time. <laughs> all right, anyway. Um, Stephen, you know, I, I, was, I was in a really hard place and Stephen really helped me out. He is such a great guy. I have found him to be just an in, incredible guy. He's a man of God. He's just so generous. He is an absolutely great guy. Stephen is the man. If ever you want to know what a man looks like, he look, it looks like that. All right, thank you. All right, thank you, Stephen. All right, now. <laughs> and all of that's true, by the way. So that is great. See, what I've done there is I've told someone else about something good that Stephen's done for me. I have shown gratitude to Stephen by spreading his reputation, by saying something. Now, why would a wealthy patron want a lesser patron to do that? Because it could mean that they get a seat in the Senate. It could mean that they... They, you know, this is like politics, right? They could get a position in the Senate, which, you know what that means? A license to print money. Because guess what? Back in the Greco-Roman world, nearly all politicians were corrupt. And that's just the way the world worked. It meant that they could acquire land by decree of the Caesar, if they, they could carry favour with Caesar, and the Caesar was the ultimate patron. And if you're in the Senate, you're interacting with Caesar all the time. So that's why a patron might want a lesser patron, like in this instance, Stephen might want me, 
to tell people just what a great guy he is. But notice what gratitude looks like. It looks like me not saying directly to the person, thank you. It looks like me telling someone else what he has done for me. Listen to the psalmist. This is how the ancient world worked. Come and hear all you who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. You see, the psalmist is going to do exactly what I just did with Eunice. I'm going to brag on God to someone. I'm going to give thanks to God. So when we have a testimony time and you come up and you give thanks to God for his goodness, you are showing gratitude. You are, Greek word, eucharisteo. You are showing gratitude. So gratitude is to tell others what your patron has done for you. And can I tell you, God is our ultimate patron. He is the one you can go to with your requests. He is the one who can grant your requests. And what he's expecting is some gratitude. That from scripture. Let us give thanks to the Lord, the psalmist would say. And so what would happen in the Greco-Roman world if a lesser patron didn't do that? They might come again to that wealthier patron and guess what? I'm not giving you anything. You didn't show gratitude. So we read in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 this statement about gratitude and how giving a sacrifice of thanks and praise to God means declaring how good he is to someone else. You ever read that passage in Colossians where it says when we come together we pray and we sing psalms hymns and spiritual songs to each other you know I know that there are some super spiritual types that go no we should be singing to God but can you see how declaring God's goodness and what he's done for you is glorifying him and this is how the ancient world showed gratitude so Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 through him then let us continually offer uh, up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name so now we come back to our original word Eucharisteo I will give thanks I will show gratitude to you God by telling everyone what you've done for me. Let's pray. Father, as we remember Christmas coming up, as we remember what you've done for us, as we think about all your goodness toward us and the greatest gift that you have given us as our ultimate patron, the gift of your son, Lord, I pray that we can declare to all in sundry what you have done for us. And so, Father, I pray for the events that Tony reminded us of, the children's Christmas play, the Christmas barbecues, spit roast lunch, and then, Lord, the carols event that we will have here on Friday the 17th. All of these things give us an opportunity to Eucharisteo, to give you thanks, to show our gratitude. And so now, Lord, may we know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.
Have a great week. You can week. also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, there was honour afforded to the patron who showed favour to a person of lesser standing when they offered their gratitude. That should influence us and in how we respond to Christ and his favour to us. More from Dr Corbett next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.